0: As We look to you now. Amen. Uh, so about um, 1600 years ago, um, a man called Augustine wrote out his story. Um, and as he wrote out his life story, he begins by saying to God, uh, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. You made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. And he wrote that because the Bible tells us people are made in the image of God. People are made to image God, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Uh, We were made to be with God. We were made to be with God. When I um, used to have a real job and I worked as an engineer, um, there was a time when I, I was standing at the printer and waiting for something to happen. I spent a lot of time standing at the printer waiting for things to happen. Uh, and this other guy was there, a guy called Dave. I think he was a safety engineer. Um, and, and we got talking. Um, and for some reason, he started to share about his wife and about, about how his wife was, was really frightened of death, really, really frightened of dying. And, and as he was kind of opening up, I, I mumbled something to him about finding hope in what the Bible says. And, and he turns to me and he says, yeah, but the Bible is just It's just a jumble of different writings. It doesn't make any sense. And and I said, well, you know, the Bible does have confusing bits in it, but there is just one big idea. There's one story that holds it all together that goes from beginning to end. And he said, well, what is it? What is the big story of the Bible? What would you say? What would you say? The Bible's difficult, isn't it? We've got to acknowledge that. The Bible is a hard book. I don't know if you ever find it bewildering. Uh, If you don't, you might not have ever read it. Um, But as as soon as we open up the Bible, we get taken into a strange and ancient world. Uh, We read about people and places that are not familiar to us. We read about habits and customs and times that that are just so alien. They're so far from us. Uh, It can be quite a frustrating book. Uh, When we open the Bible, we we think, well, so much has changed since these things were written down. Is it possible to make any meaningful sense? So much has changed. The world looks so different. And yet one thing hasn't changed. Uh, The God who dealt with people back then is the same God we are to reckon with today. God has not changed. He never changes in the Bible, we learn of him. The Bible tells us the story of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. And it's a great story which stretches from beginning to end. So over these five Summer Sundays, we are thinking about that big picture of the Bible. The Bible made up of these 66 books written by about 40 different authors over a period of about 2,000 years, written in three different languages, and yet with a remarkable unity. They're all together, this collection telling one great history. Uh, we've just been away this week and I very kindly lent us some jigsaw puzzles. Um, we did two of four, um, which isn't bad, I don't think. And w- w- when you start a jigsaw puzzle, what you have is a mass of incoherent pieces that don't make any sense. Uh, a pile of, uh, a jumble of pieces and piled up on the table in front of you, it doesn't make any sense until you look at the picture on the box. When you see the picture on the box, you see how all the pieces are to connect together. And the Bible can be very baffling, so it helps us a lot to have an idea of the big picture, what all the parts connect together to tell. We started last week looking at creation, God, a kingdom. We looked at the pattern of the kingdom. God's God's way of, of reckoning with the world is to deal with it in kingdom terms. Uh, a people and a place under God's rule and blessing. We saw that uh, Ben helpfully took us through the pattern of the kingdom last week, where God, in creation, made people Adam and Eve to live in a place, the Garden of Eden, and to enjoy the blessing of God. People were made to be with God, but it all went very horribly wrong, badly wrong. There was rebellion in the kingdom; uh, the kingdom was was torn apart. Adam and Eve didn't want God as their king; they wanted to be master of their own destiny. Uh, And the place in which God had put them would not permit their sin. And so Adam and Eve were removed from paradise. Uh, What Adam and Eve got, the tragedy of Adam and Eve is they got exactly what they wanted. They didn't want to be under God's rule and so they were sent away from it. And they didn't believe God about the reality of losing a place in his kingdom. Perished kingdom. It all fell apart. It's easy to tell the tragedy, isn't it? We rehearse it many times as we think about the state of human beings. It's easy to speak about the fall, but it's hard to understand it. It's hard to understand because we've only ever known the world as it is post the fall. The brokenness of our world is so familiar. It's the air that we breathe. The horror of what happened in Genesis 3 is too ordinary for us. Now, we were made to be with God and our hearts are restless until they rest in him and the human tragedy the human tragedy is that we have been separated from the one with whom we cannot do the one with whom we cannot be separated from the one the one who is god over all a god is all he is life all life is in him and from him a god is all light everything that is pure emits from god That God is all love. He is love. He is true and perfect love. To be separated from him is to be without all of those things. It's to be doomed and to be in the dark and to be dead. Life is a pretense, really. All human life is an illusion. An illusion, a prolonged dying, followed by an ending death. And as Ben said last time, it could have all ended there. It would have been justice if it had all ended there but it, but it didn't. It didn't because God is unendingly consistently, because God does not change. He made the world for a purpose and he will not stop until his purpose has been achieved. So God invaded our rebel world with outrageous grace. Lavishing promises on Abraham. Oh, again, we saw this last time, the promised kingdom. As God made kingdom promises to this man, Abraham plucked at random uh, from, from the people of the world, but promised that he would become, his descendants would become a people. They would live in a land of promise and they would enjoy the blessing of God. And uh, that's where we left it last time. And today we've read from 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Uh, w- we've read a passage that skips forward about a thousand years of history. Uh, the, the, the time from Abraham to Solomon, is about a thousand years and we're jumping in on the story at this point. Why are we zooming in in 1 Kings chapter 8? Well, it's a bit like this. Some people are on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. It is now, isn't it? It is now, yeah. If they think it's all over. It is now. Uh, we know the words that a commentator spoke over a football game in 1966. It is embedded into our social consciousness. Why? Because that's when the England football team won the football won the World Cup. And that was the best of times for English football until last week, when England, the English women team won the European Cup. And I think one of the newspapers said, that ends the 56 years of hurt, is it? However long it's been, a long time. A long, long time. 1996, do you remember when we sang, football's coming home? 30 years of hurt. Still goes on, doesn't it? Um, 1966 stands out because, because after the high point, it's been so dismal doesn't it? 1 Kings chapter 8 is like that. It's it's the the high point in Abraham's family history. This is the high point. What's going on in 1 Kings chapter 8? Let's think. How did we get to 1 Kings 8? We left off with Abraham being promised uh, to become a great nation, and now we are told in 1 Kings chapter 8, a thousand years later, We're told about the the verse one, the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families. See, what has happened is that Abraham had a son, Isaac, who had a son, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons uh, and those 12 sons, that little family unit with a few of their children, 70 of them uh, moved off to Egypt in a famine. And in Egypt, this, this little group of about 70 who arrived there to escape the famine, they set up home. And um, they bred like rabbits, really, in Egypt. They multiplied greatly. Each of those 12 sons became a great family. Each of those families became a great tribe. And, And the Egyptians got scared about this. See, what has happened for the Egyptians is that a foreign nation had started to grow up within their borders. It was like an invasion, a subtle invasion over years and years, generations, this nation growing within their borders. The Egyptians were terrified that they would be run out of their own country. So they oppressed the Israelites, ruthlessly oppressed them. They murdered their baby boys. They made the whole nation into slaves. But God had made a promise. And God's promise was not that his people would, would, be, would fade away in Egypt. Now God, God made a promise. So God turned up in Egypt. Now, you remember back in Eden, uh, the people in Eden were sent away from God because of sin. Sin and God do not mix. God is going to turn up in Egypt. And when God turns up, sin will not survive. God's presence is a holy presence. His presence consumes sin. It was going to be a huge problem when God turned up in Egypt. See, since, since Genesis 3, nobody has been without sin. And in Egypt, these nations, the Egyptians and the Israelites, none of them were better off than the others. God was going to come to Egypt So he announced his coming beforehand with warnings, plagues of warning. There was a lot of time to be ready for when God came. And God warned that when he came, the firstborn in every family, in in all the land would die. Because sin cannot survive God's coming. Now now the Egyptians didn't believe him. The Egyptians had seen the river turn to they'd seen night turn to day they'd seen gnats and frogs and flies and boils they'd seen all of this but they would not listen they had hard hearts but the Israelites God said I'm coming he said when I come the firstborn of all will die sin will be punished the Israelites are no better than the Egyptians they're they're just as sinful But, but God said if you will provide a stand in if you provide a substitute, if you take a lamb and let the life of that lamb stand in the place of the firstborn, then when I come, I will pass over the homes that have the doorpost painted with the blood. And they trusted what God said. Each household killed a lamb, painted the blood over the doorpost, and God rescued them from their misery. Now our, our passage today, a thousand years later, a centuries after that moment in verse 9, looks back to the time when they came out of Egypt. It speaks of it in verse 9. Now, and what is remembered here in verse 9 is that the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them. This is really important. Now imagine you, you go for a walk, you're walking down a path and you see a duck egg in front of you. You look around, you can't see a, a nest or any other ducks. And so uh, b- b- before it gets trampled, you snatch it up, you rescue it, you save the egg, you take it home, keep it in a warm place. And a few days later, it cracks and out comes a little duckling and it sees you. And what I'm told, I don't know if it's true or not, but, but it will imprint on you. You will become its mother. Uh, and uh, this little duckling will instinctively cling to you. It will follow you. It will, it will look for you to provide everything that it needs that rescue becomes a relationship that's what God does why God rescues he rescues for relationship God doesn't bring the people out of 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 Egypt and say there you go you're on your own now no no no. God brings the people out and he says you're mine this is the message of the whole book of Exodus he brings them out he says you belong to me you are my treasure you are my love you are my people I am your God and you are my people he brings them out so he can bring them to himself. So he makes a covenant with them. He, he gathers them at this place called Horeb and he, he meets with them and he gives them good rules to live by so they might enjoy his blessing. Now that the covenant is, is a formal commitment. It's like a marriage where, where people promise to belong to one another for better or for worse. God makes this promise that he will belong to his people and they will belong to him. So in 1 Kings chapter 8, a thousand years after Abraham, we see the progress of kingdom promises that the people are now the nation of Israel. The 12 tribes are redeemed people, rescued from Egypt for relationship with God. And what is happening in 1 Kings 8? Uh, we're told in verse 5 that, Everybody is involved. The entire assembly of Israel are gathered. The king has summoned the entire nation to come together for a purpose. And the purpose in verse 1, is brought them together to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. The ark was a wooden box covered with gold. Uh, And what they do, they bring it up. And verse 6 says, the priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. There are probably a few bits just to explain in verse 6. To to, to explain it, let's wind our way back again, right back to the beginning, right back to that pattern of the kingdom, right back to how God set up things. See, when, when God created the world, he created it with, with three sections. He created this place called Eden, a delight is what it means. And, and next to Eden was a garden, and beyond the garden was the outer world. And God gave his people a mission. He said, he said I want you to expand the borders of the, bar- of the garden. I, I want you to fill the world with image bearers until all the world is filled with the glory of God. See, the, the beginning wasn't a destination. It was a pattern of the kingdom. It had a, a, a prospect of becoming permanent. It had this potential, potential that, that what was planted in the beginning would grow. The kingdom of heaven would fill the whole earth. There'd be God's people in God's place, enjoying God's blessing everywhere. But it went wrong, of course. The fall came. And then the promises came to Abraham. And then the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, were were rescued from Egypt. God gathered them to Horeb. He made this covenant. He spoke relationship-creating words with them. And the words that God spoke on that day were written on stone tablets. Uh, And God gave instructions then at that time when he spoke. He said, you need to make some things. One of the things to make is this ark, this box, to carry those stone tablets with the words of God. You need to make a tent, this tabernacle. Uh, in order to keep the ark in. And as you move around from place to place, you have to move the tent from place to place. God gave very specific instructions. And when he told how to build a tabernacle, he said the tabernacle is to have three sections. It's to have a a middle bit, the holy of holies. And then beyond that, you have another place, a holy place. And then an outer court. There's an intentional similarity to what happened in creation. That this, this tabernacle was, a, was a, a mini model of the whole of creation. And the reason that God gave the instructions was because God wanted to live with his people. God wanted his people to be able to enjoy his goodness. But the problem now, after creation, the problem now is that the pollution of sin has spread everywhere. And it changes everything. Now, the, the tabernacle is a, is a remaking of Eden, but in this new context of sin. It's, it's like when you suddenly have a power cut in your house. You're in the middle of doing something, just the lights go out, everything stops working, um, and you're a bit befuddled for a moment. But, but, but in that context, you have to still keep on doing things, don't you? You just have to work out how to do them in the new situation. Now, God wants to be with his people, but adjustments are needed for the new situation. God cannot be approached like he was in the beginning because now sin has to be answered for. But when the Israelites arrived eventually in the promised land, it took them generations to actually move into the land. Uh, Eventually, the whole nation was united under one King David. They possessed the whole land. They had peace on every side. And at that point, it was time for this tent to find a permanent home. David envisioned it. His son Solomon actioned this building of a house for God, the temple. At the beginning of 1 Kings, the chapters leading up to what we read describes how Solomon builds this temple in Jerusalem. And the temple, well, it was just a permanent tabernacle. It had the same structure that that the tabernacle had. It had a a middle bit, the Holy of Holies. It had a a bit outside it, around that, the holy place. And beyond that, the outer court. Like the tabernacle, it was a model of creation. Like, Like in the beginning, like in Eden, it had this prospect of permanence. But now it had to contend with the intrusion of sin. The place of God's kingdom is the place where God chooses to be known for his presence to be. The place of God's kingdom is the place where heaven and earth are connected together. And at this point in the big picture, when we get to the beginning of 1 Kings, at this point, the place that God chooses for his presence to be is the temple and not just the temple but the middle of the temple the holy of holies this is this is the place where the kind of throne room of heaven extends down to earth Uh, the ark is called the 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 footstool of god he has his throne in heaven and here's his footstool we see here about these cherubim that they they tell us about this entrance into heaven see that the cherubim were, were mighty they are mighty heavenly beings you might remember that there was the cherubim who were appointed in Genesis 3 to guard the entrance to the that The, that the cherubim are the kind of gatekeepers of God's heavenly presence. So, so the instructions for the tabernacle then the temple included making models of these cherubim to overlook the Ark of the Covenant. They, they symbolize that this is the place that is the gateway to heaven. This is the, the place where heaven and earth are connected together. God's place is, his presence is above the ark, says the psalmist, in the Holy of Holies. This is the place where God has chosen to dwell, so where the temple is, the city of the temple, Jerusalem, the land of the temple, this is God's place. And yet, saying all that is so obvious that we're talking in symbols, aren't we? It's models. These are all signposts, they're not the destination. It shows that the kingdom has partly come. Now the promise was for God's people, the family of Abraham, to live in God's place, the land of Canaan. And We see that, that coming into action in 1 Kings 8, where the becomes the temple. When the building is put into active service, as the ark is moved from the tabernacle into the temple, the kingdom plan is happening, but happening in pictures and symbols. The kingdom of God is partially installed. God's people, the Israelites, in God's place. The land of Canaan with the temple at the center. And the blessing. The blessing. A few years ago, the BBC ran an article entitled, The Science Behind Good Gifts. And it says in the article that research shows that giving a bad gift can hurt your relationships. It is a boring article. It was really dull. I thought it might have given me something interesting. But the point it basically makes is that if you care about someone, we think carefully about giving them something to show that. The more that we care, the more care we take. I don't think we needed a BBC article to tell us that, did we, really? Um, the more we care, the more care we take. What does God do when he cares? God is not stingy. Now, when God made the world, He made a world of abundance, and He said to people, "I want you to go and to enjoy all that I have made." Now, when it comes to God's people, as the story unfolds, we see God gives the greatest gift. God gives a gift that cannot be bettered. God's love is so immense that He holds nothing back when it comes to giving to His people, and we see that in One Kings verses ten and eleven we see that when the temple is set up when it's put into action it says the cloud filled the temple what does that mean well the next verse explains it is the glory of the lord filled his temple the glory of the lord glory is um it's the the shining out of brilliance That glory is is like the rays of the sun. It's like the sound of the music. Now, our God is beyond words. We can't describe him. He is utter perfect brilliance. He is pure beauty. He is utterly immense. He is more than the best that we can imagine. I think this last week in the Lake District, we we climbed up somewhere called Grizzledale Pike. It's a good name, isn't it? As, As we reached the top, nearly at the top, the top was bad, but when we nearly got to the top, uh, this vista of mountains unfolded before us. There were tiny rivers separating the peaks, sunlight dancing uh, off the shadows in the, in the rugged crags. It was, it was breathtaking. Worth every aching limb to climb to that height. But that stunning sense of majesty is nothing compared to the presence of the living God. Every time our breath has been taken away by natural beauty, we have had the tiniest sense of God But here in the temple, the glory of the Lord is present. God turns in the temple. God comes to live among his people, the glory presence of God Almighty. This temple that's full of symbols, the ark is a symbol, the cherubim are symbols, the structure of the rooms are symbols, but they're not empty symbols. These are signs that point to a destination. They they don't just picture a reality, but they bring the reality to those of faith. The blessing of God's kingdom is that God wants to live with his people. God gives the very best, even himself. Now, by the time we get to 1 Kings 8, the kingdom of God is partially installed. The pattern of the kingdom now modeled in the land of Canaan with the temple at the center. But it is the post-fall world of God living among his people must now contend with the sin curse. God is going to live among his people. That is his plan. But it creates a problem for sinful people. Now look what happens in verse 5. The whole nation is gathered. The ark is being transported. This object that represents the presence of God, this touching point of heaven and earth, is being moved from one place to its home in the temple. And as it happens, it says, King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. This is what happened in Egypt. A God was going to turn up in Egypt and God and sin cannot mix. Sinners are consumed before the holy God. So in Egypt, a lamb died in the place of the firstborn. But in 1 Kings 8, the scene is difficult to imagine, isn't it? It's hard to imagine what verse 5 looked like, what it sounded like. There was blood everywhere. There are rivers of blood being poured out. If for God to live among his people, for them to enjoy the blessing of relationship with him, their sin must be atoned for. had instituted the principle of sacrifice for sin. God had told the people what must be done for their sin to be forgiven. And all these sacrifices are offered in the place of the sinful people. These sacrifices represent this transfer of the sin of the people onto the animal and the animal paying the death price. The relationship with God is predicated on redemptive sacrifice. The blessing of God's kingdom is that God wants to live with his people. God wants to give the very best himself. And what does it mean when God blesses like that? And what does that blessing look like, feel like? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 8, King Solomon goes on to pray. Pray through the blessings which flow from this relationship with God. We've not got time to look at them all, but we can, we can look at some highlights. In, in verse 29, he prays, May your eyes be opened towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there so that you will hear the prayer of your servants and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. The Holy of Holies is the where heaven touches earth. It represents a direct access to the throne of heaven, a direct access to the ear of heaven. God hears their and especially God hears their cries for mercy. Verse 57, may he never leave us nor forsake us. Verse 58, may he turn our hearts to him to walk in obedience to him and keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave to our ancestors. The presence of God is found at the ark. In the ark, the, the, the tablets of the covenant are stored. Tablets which, which contain the written words of God relationship with god is not is not found by magical objects relationship with god is found by hearing and obeying his word the law of god it's it's this word of god that goes out that establishes and sustains relationship with his people and obedience to his word is the way of blessing the blessing of relationship with god is god's unending commitment to do good to forgive sin and make us live as we were made to live and at the end of Solomon's prayer, he says, so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. By the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 8, the kingdom of God is partially installed. God's people, the Israelites of Abraham, God's place, the, the land of Canaan with the temple at the center, God's blessing, that God has given his law and his king to mediate that law. We were made to be with God. Do you know that? Do you know that there is nothing in this world that is big enough to satisfy your heart because your heart was not made for anything in this world? And that's why we get bored. It's why we can't settle. It's why we yearn and we try to fill our aching, but not enough. It's why we so often can read about successful people. That they get to the top in their their sport or their career and when they get to the top they find there's nothing there. It's why it's so typical for cynicism to the old age. People get more grumpy the older they get and one of the reasons is that life doesn't deliver. No, we weren't made for what this life can offer. We were made for more. Now what the Bible does is it gives humanity a staggering significance we're not the random product of natural selection that the desires and the loves and the passions that we have are not pointless they're not meaningless the bible says we are image bearers of god we were made to be with god and nothing less than god will be enough for us do you know that but what's more astonishing than that is that god wants to be with us now, the fact that we need God, that, that nothing less than God will meet our needs. Now, without God, we are, we are so lost. Without God, we have such a lostness that our worst nightmares barely touch on the outer edge of the, of the chasm of emptiness that life with God will bring. We need God. But God doesn't need us, does he? God doesn't need anything. God is God. He's he's self-sufficient. He is self-satisfied. He is independent like nothing else. God does not need us. God wants to be with us. He wants to be with us. Now, chapter 8 is 1966 for English football. It's the high point. Made higher by the rapid decline of follows. It's the partial kingdom, but after this, every part seems to crumble, seems to fall apart. Solomon himself apostatizes. After him, the nation is torn into two bits, and they fight, and they worship idols, and they forget the word of God, and they, they try to make it on their own, and there's hundreds of years of decline until eventually they are all torn out of the land. Genesis 3 just repeats itself. And again, the story could have ended there, but it doesn't. It doesn't because God is unendingly consistent. God does not change. God made the world for a purpose and he will not rest until his purpose is realized. So God invaded our world with outrageous grace. God's kingdom, patterned in creation, promised to Abraham, partially realized in Israel, God will not stop because God wants to be with his people. Now in 1 Kings chapter 8, as the ark is moved, the king and the people are making these sacrifices and it is very poignant that it says that they could not be recorded or counted there are rivers of blood pouring in one kings eight and as we we contemplate that the grossness of that we have to ask why were there so many well there were so many because one would not be enough because two would not be enough because a hundred would not be enough, a thousand would not be enough. It was not enough. The measurable number of the sacrifices tells us of their insufficiency, and the decline that, that that followed afterward tells us that it is not enough. Now, one king's eight. It points to something unspeakably precious, but at the same time, it leaves an aching void. It it raises the question, how can God live with his people? Solomon prayed on that day, there is no one who does not sin. Sin that kicked us out of Eden, sin that separates us from God. The deepest problem for anyone who has ever lived is that we were made to be with God, but our sin means that we cannot be with him. And our hope, our hope is not that we need God, but that he wants to be with us. These uncountable sacrifices, insufficient sacrifices, could not take away sin, but they could point to the one sacrifice that does. One sacrifice that would be enough. Just as the Passover lambs prefigured the Passover lamb. All these animals could never stand in for the image of God. But God wanted to be with his people. So God came. And in the fullness of time, the Son of God became the Son of Man. He entered into our humanity and he came so that he could stand in for us. And he could lay down his perfect life on our behalf. So he could be the sacrifice for our sins. He could be a sacrifice that would actually take away sin. A sacrifice of such magnitude a sacrifice of such value and preciousness that it would be eternally sufficient for the sin of all the world for every sin that I have ever done for every sin that you have ever completely paid for by his God, as our wrong is taken from us and laid upon him so that in him there is now no condemnation so that in Him our guilt is lifted. So that in Him people like us can boldly enter into the Holy of Holies and not be refused. We can walk past the cherubim and not be cut off by the flaming sword. We can walk into the presence of God Almighty and be welcomed as His beloved children. That sacrifice. That sacrifice. That sacrifice ensures we can be presented blameless into the sight of God. 1 Peter 3 says, Christ also wants for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Because God wants to be with his people. God wants to be with his people so he made a way through the sacrifice of his son. And he offers that way to everyone who will come. All who turn from their sin and trust Jesus will find forgiveness, will find a place in the fulfillment of everything the Bible promises. You were made to be with God. And God wants to be with you. God has made a way through the blood of Christ for you to be with forever. And wouldn't it be crazy foolish to refuse him? Wouldn't that be utter madness? To refuse such an unspeakably precious gift. We need God and he wants us. He's made the way and he offers it to us. And the ear of heaven is waiting for you to ask for mercy. Will you ask? And if you've tasted this mercy already, why would you ever look for anything else? Now in this week that lies before us, what would hold you back? heart to praise and to honor him would you yield to him every thought every deed every every word would you put to him everything that is in your hand and and worship him with blessed thankfulness we were made to be with God and God wants to be with us and he's made a way through the Lord Jesus